If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 5, using one of the hardback books in the rack in front of you. It's page 1039. Uh, well, this is Mother's Day, as we've said, and I really wanted to get all the mothers here today a special gift. I've sort of thought through it this week, what would be practical, what's something that I could give to all the mothers just to be a blessing to them. And after much thought and prayer, uh, here's what I came up with. For the next 35 minutes, I will preach as hard and as mean as I can to the men. How's that? <laughs> so ladies, just sort of sit back and enjoy. This will be a nice ride for you. We're focusing on marriage and family for a few weeks. I'm thankful that we have a church where God has blessed us with so many young couples. That is the lifeblood of the church. And you know that that's something that so many churches, uh, big and small, long for and don't have, but God has blessed us here. We have uh, young families and we have medium families and we have old families and God has given us a multi-generational church and that's really where, what, what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. And so as a part of that, we, we want to focus on family. Marriage is, is one of the most important things for the health of a church, for the health of these children that grow up. And so our focus for the next few weeks as a church is on marriage and the family. Somebody might ask, why would we focus on marriage for five weeks? Well, there are a number of reasons. One is because marriage is God's idea. And when we uh, understand and embrace marriage by his design, his design, then we honor God. Secondly, marriage is a gift from God. It is one of the greatest sources of joy, of satisfaction, and of stability and if we do it according to his plan, if we will study and learn his plan and execute his plan, it'll be a great gift for us. That's why this is important for married couples to be a part of these five weeks. It's important though for those who are not yet married because the best time to learn God's path for marriage is before you begin to go down that path. And this is also important for those whose children are married because grandmothers and grandfathers uh, your responsibility to give wisdom and direction to your children never ends. And you need to know what God's word has to say about marriage. But you know, a third reason why this is important is because marriage is a reflection in many ways of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we are here. We are who we are. We have a relationship with God because of the good news of Christ that Jesus has paved the way. He has paid the price and he has made it possible that we could be reconciled to the Father despite our sin. And so anything that we can see on earth that reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is well worth our time to pay attention to that. And marriage is one of those things. Really, marriage is a two-way illustration. If we know something about the gospel, we'll learn something about marriage. But if we know something about marriage, we can learn something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me show you three ways. First of all, unselfish love. When we see in an ideal marriage, unselfish love. When we see a husband and wife just loving each other, not for what they get out of it, but just because they have chosen to love one another, that is a picture of the unconditional, unmerited love of the father for his children. You know, God loves and accepts me not because I follow certain rules, not because I have achieved something, not because I have done something, but God just loves me in an unmerited way. I haven't earned it or deserve it, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf, 
my father loves me unconditionally. And you see a glimpse of that in, in good marriages. Another way a marriage uh, proclaims the gospel is in its complete forgiveness. When a husband and wife have, have come together, that's, uh, that's two sinners, that's two rebellious people coming together, making a union, and it's always going to require forgiveness. Throughout a marriage, forgiveness has to be a theme. And when we see a husband and wife forgiving each other, being quick to forgive, we're reminded in the gospel of Christ that God has forgiven us. And not only is God quick to forgive, but God, because of the work of Christ on the cross, has forgiven me for every sin I will ever commit. Uh, when we see forgiveness in marriage, it reminds us of the forgiveness in the gospel. But a third way that marriage reminds us of the gospel is just the lasting nature of the relationship. Uh, husband and wife, they've made a commitment for the rest of their lives. And, and that uh, lifelong commitment says something about the commitment that God has made to us. That when, when God forgave me and adopted me into his family, it was a forever commitment on his part. And not just for this life, for, but for eternal life. Isn't that amazing? You know, one of the things, this is a piece of trivia, but maybe it will encourage you. Uh, the New Testament is written for the most part in Greek. Uh, it's an ancient language, the kind of Greek anyway that the Old Testament, the New Testament rather was written in. Uh, ancient language that we don't speak today. But pastors study it so that they can sometimes uh, add clarity when they're teaching God's word. And so one of the things that I've learned as I've studied some passages in Greek is that the Greek word for wedding ring or engagement ring is the word Erebos. Now, I'm simplifying things, and so if you're a Greek scholar, you know that there are several different kinds of Greek, and I'm putting some things together. But all of that aside, the, the, the Greek word for wedding ring or engagement ring is Erebos. Now, let me tell you why that's important. When I married my wife, I gave her a wedding ring and an engagement ring. I'd given to her a little time before, but I gave her those rings as a symbol, as a as the earnest for my promise that I would always love her and always stand with her. Those rings represent, it is a physical representation of the lifelong promise that I made to her. And I'm wearing a wedding ring that represents her promise to me. Now, the Greek word for that, as I said, is Erebos. If you turn to Ephesians 1, and we're going to be in Ephesians 5, but let me just read to you a couple of verses in Ephesians 1, because it talks about marriage. And in Ephesians 1, verse 13, it says, in him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now that means that when I was saved, God sealed me with the Holy Spirit. Now that seems odd. Well, I wonder what that means. And then the next verse tells us, it says the Holy Spirit is the down payment, my Bible says, of the inheritance that you will receive. Your Bible might say it is the guarantee or it is the earnest money. But you know what that word is in Greek? It's the word Erebos. It's engagement ring. When I, when I trusted Christ for my salvation and forgiveness for all eternity, God put the Holy Spirit in my life as a wedding ring, as a as a part of the promise that he would love me, forgive me, and stand with me forever and ever and ever. So one of the reasons why I like to study marriage and the family from scripture is because it reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Well, that brings us to Ephesians 5, and that's where our focus is going to be. Ephesians 5 is one of those passages, one of the most important passages that tell us something about Christian marriage. It is, I think, the most important passage, and we're going to walk through this today and then again next week. So, just to give special reverence to the authority and the reliability of God's Word, let's just stand and honor it as we read a few verses beginning in Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read verse 22. Look with me in your Bible. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This is God's word. Please be seated. Now this is that well-known, sometimes infamous passage about husbands loving wives and wives submitting to husbands. Now, some people love this passage, and some of those for all the wrong reasons. And some people hate this passage for all the wrong reasons. But I want to take some time and and just explain it to you. We're going to start this week. It'll take us a couple of weeks to explain these words. But I want to explain to you how God takes men and women who are very different, who have different strengths and different weaknesses. God takes men and women... And he identifies for each of them certain roles and he blends these strengths and weaknesses together under the umbrella of these assigned roles to make the masterpiece of Christian marriage. A a, a marriage that can bring joy and stability and peace and happiness. But God makes this masterpiece by bringing together the strengths and weaknesses of women and men and the roles that God has assigned to us and makes this beautiful masterpiece. Now, sometimes what people will do is people will take just a portion of this and they'll focus on it and say, that's bad. Well, that's not a good thing to say. The Bible shouldn't say that. Surely it means something different than what we think it means. And what they've done though is they have just isolated one part of this and they failed to recognize how God is making this masterpiece with all of these different ingredients. God makes a masterpiece where the strengths and weaknesses of men and women come together so that all the strengths are emphasized and all the weaknesses are de-emphasized. And we have this strong structure that God could build a church on and a culture and a civilization on, but you've got to have all the parts. You know, I have a weird way of thinking about things. You probably have figured that out. And as I was studying this this week, I couldn't help but think, about a Red Lobster Cheddar Bay Biscuit. If you ever have one of those. I wanted to do this illustration by handing out Cheddar Bay Biscuits. But uh, our, our beloved executive pastor, Mark, said no. <laughs> Something about the money and the buttery fingers, I don't know, but uh, you'll just have to imagine. So if you've ever been to Red Lobster, and maybe you've not, but uh, they serve these little biscuits when you get there. And they're the whole reason. I don't even know what else Red Lobster is there for. <laughs> it's, it's just the biscuit. They just all call it the Yellow Biscuit restaurant or something. But uh, I've never had a lobster there. But I've certainly had the biscuits, and so have you. And so they bring these biscuits out, and they are absolutely uh, sinfully wonderful. But have you ever thought about what those biscuits are made of? 
I, I looked it up. You might not want to know, but I, I looked it up this week and discovered that there are really five ingredients in a Cheddar Bay biscuit. There are five spoons of stuff, different things, and you mix them together and, and stick them in an oven and out comes a Cheddar Bay biscuit. So let me tell you what they are. First of all, it's a, it's a heaping spoon, tablespoon of flour, just plain bleached wheat flour. There's, it's a heaping tablespoon of flour. And then it's a tiny little spoon of baking powder or baking soda. I, of course, don't know the difference, but I, I know there is one. But baking powder, I mean flour, and then baking powder, I think. And then the third spoon is a spoon of garlic. The fourth spoon is a spoon of salt. And the fifth spoon is a spoon of buttermilk. Okay, so let's imagine that you go to Red Lobster this afternoon for Mother's Day and instead of bringing you the, the Cheddar Bay biscuits, they just bring a plate with five spoons. A spoon of flour and a spoon of baking powder and a spoon of garlic and a spoon of buttermilk and salt. And they say, we, we just, we're trying to get back to nature. We're not gonna mix it up. You just eat it like that. And so you first have a spoon of flour, just, just powdered flour. You just have a spoon of flour. And then you, you know, there's a little bitter taste and you know, you're puffing white smoke out of your nose. And then you have a, a spoon of baking powder. And I don't even know what that would do. I guess now you've got fizz coming out of your nose. I mean, it probably wouldn't be a good picture. And you follow that with some garlic and some salt and you wash it down with a big spoon of buttermilk. Listen, if that's how they serve Cheddar Bay biscuits, nobody would go to Red Lobster again. Because it's not the pieces that make the Cheddar Bay Biscuit good. It is the arrangement. It is that they have figured out, the Red Lobster scientists have figured out a way to combine these ingredients in such a way that it produces food from heaven. Well, God has figured out a way to take the strengths and weaknesses of men and women and the roles that God has given to us and arrange them in a way that it is a masterpiece, that it can withstand the, the difficulties of living in this culture, that it can withstand a, a, a sinful wife marrying a sinful husband, that it can withstand the stress of child rearing, that it can, that it can withstand our personal rebellion and selfishness, that, it, that if we will let God arrange this, it will be a beautiful thing that'll be valuable to us. And so today, we're going to focus on the men. All right, we're going to talk about what does it mean for a man to love a woman. He says here how a man's to love his wife. Next week, we're going to talk about the roles of women. Now, I want you to just set aside any preconceived ideas of what these verses mean. Let's set aside our caricatured ideas, meaning that we've pointed out just two or three parts of this and, and exploded it from there. Let's set that aside and let your pastor just teach you over the next two weeks, what do these verses mean when they're putting together these pieces to form the masterpiece of a Christian marriage? I think you will be delighted. I think we will be encouraged. I think you will be challenged, but we'll all benefit from knowing what God's word has to say. So let's focus on men for a little while. The Bible says in this passage that men are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. So men, how do you do that? There are four things. Number one, you need to put your family first. Put your family first. Now, 
I want to look back at the verses that we read a moment ago. Verse 25, the first verse, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So men, let's just be honest. How did Christ love the church? Did Christ come and allow the church to serve him? Did Christ come and sit in a, in a lazy boy recliner and let the church rub his toes and feed him grapes? No. The Bible says that Christ came and served the church. In fact, Christ came and sacrificed for the church to the point that he died on the cross for the church. And so when the Bible says that men ought to love their wives like Christ loved the church, it means that we are to put our wives and put our family first. It's not about you being first. It's about her being first. It's about the family being first. Sometimes people look at this husband's love and wives submit and they come away with this idea that the husband is the king of the house and the wife is the servant to the king and he just sits back and he's first, she's last. But the Bible says the exact opposite of that. Men, to love your wife like Christ loved the church is to put her first. You know, sometimes men will, will say to me, I wish my wife would submit to me. Well, perhaps she would if you were putting her first. You see, I, I don't know that I've ever met a woman who would not submit to her husband putting her first. I don't know that I've ever met a woman who, who would be resistant to her husband putting her needs ahead of his needs, putting her, her priorities ahead of his priorities, her feelings ahead of his feelings. Men, if you want your wife to submit, put her first. And I promise you, she will submit to that. She's not going to refuse to be first. She's not going to push back against being, against being the queen of the house. You put her first. That's what it means for a man to love his wife like Christ loved the church. I think this says something about who you should marry as well. If you're not married, men, let me give you some advice. If you're dating somebody, if you're not willing to put her first, to put her happiness first, to put her needs first, to put, to put her priorities first, then don't marry her. Too many, too many people are coming together with this idea of a 50-50 marriage. It's 50% about me, and it's 50% about you. Well, that's not a Christian marriage. Men, a Christian marriage is you going in like Christ came to the church and say, I love you, and I love you enough to put your needs, happiness, desires ahead of my own. We need to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Let me give you three quick ways to do that. Uh, first, prioritize your family's well-being and happiness above your own. And that's self-explanatory. It's hard to do, but it's self-explanatory. B, serve your family. Look for ways to serve your family. They're not there to serve you. You are there to serve them. And letter C, be relationship-oriented rather than task-oriented. Uh, men, I know that you and I, we like to focus on tasks. What's the problem and how can I fix it? But your family is not a task. I know sometimes my wife will say to me, uh, you need to spend some more time with the family. And I've learned not to say this, but it still pops in my mind. Can I tell you what it is? Well, what do you need me to do? What do you need me to What do you mean spend time with the family? Do you need something done? Well, no, she didn't need something done. My family is not a task. It's a relationship and I need to invest in that. That is putting my family first. 
Well, the second thing, if we're going to love our wives like Christ loved the church, not only should we put them first, but secondly, we should be the spiritual leaders of the family. Now, let's, let's continue here. We're reading in Ephesians 5. Look at verse 26. It says that Christ loved the church, verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. Reading on, he says he did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. It says that when Christ loved the church, men, he... He wanted to see the church grow spiritually. He wanted the church to have a commitment to purity and holiness. Uh, he was interested not just in serving physical needs, but in serving spiritual needs. And men, if we're going to love our wives like Christ loved the church, not only do we put them first, but we need to lead them spiritually. We must be the spiritual leader of the family. We need to be the pace setter. We need to be the one that they can follow. We need to ask them to have the same spiritual maturity that we have instead of us striving to have the same spiritual maturity that our wife has. We need to be the spiritual leaders of the family. Uh, now, let me tell you how to do that. Uh, first, men, you need to be saved. Uh, you can't lead where you've not gone. And so if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the best thing you could do for your family and I've seen this over and over in situations through the years. The best thing you can do for your family is to repent of your sins, surrender to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and become a child of God. There is nothing like a family with a saved husband and father. There's nothing that compares to that. There's nothing that can replace that. There's nothing that can substitute for that. Men, the first thing you can do to be the spiritual leader is to be a child of God yourself. Secondly, you can set the example. I think in many cases, while there are exceptions, uh, in many cases, the father uh, creates a, a glass ceiling for the spiritual maturity of his wife and his children. His wife and his children are not likely, while they're in the home, to grow beyond the spiritual level and commitment of the father. Men, we need to be the spiritual leaders. That means we need to be out front. We need to be further down the road. They need to be able to see in our lives a devotion and a commitment to God. They ought to be able to see it in the, in the Bible study that we're doing in our homes and our commitment to the church and our consistency to tithe and give, our, our commitment to missions, our commitment to service. They need to see that in us and they need to follow us. If we're the leaders, then we need to have followers. They need to be following us. They're not going to follow if they're out ahead. We need to be examples. And the third way that you become a spiritual leader is to make some tough calls. You know, one of the things that I've learned as a pastor is sometimes you have to make some tough calls. Sometimes you take some shots for it. Sometimes people will be critical. Sometimes people don't understand. But that's, that's part of it. If you're going to be a leader, you have to make tough calls. And you know that in your, in your business, perhaps. If you're a business leader, you know that sometimes you have to make tough calls. And, and if we're going to be a spiritual leader in our families, listen, men, when it comes to spiritual things, sometimes we're going to have to make some tough calls. I can think of a couple of, couple of areas just, just to point to. First one that comes to mind is the area of modesty. Now, everybody has not been you know, blessed to have daughters like I have. Some of you are stuck with sons, but, but let me talk to the, to the blessed uh, dads in the, in the room. So, uh, you know, as, 
as, as your daughters grow up, there has to be somebody who is the gatekeeper for their modesty. And you know what I'm talking about. And we've just about come to that time of year when people will begin to compromise their modesty, right? And you see, you see teen girls, and now you see not just teen girls, but you see preteen girls and children uh, wearing things that just uh, forfeits or, or, or gives away their modesty. Now, when I see that, and I don't want to be judgmental, but when I see that, I no longer believe that is a young lady who's gone astray. I think there's a lady whose father is not a spiritual leader. Now, that's, that can be tough, right? Those are some tough calls. But men, that's what it means to be a man. Make some tough calls. Be the gatekeeper for the modesty of your daughters. You choose. You decide what gets purchased. You decide what gets worn when, when children leave the home every morning. Be a spiritual leader. Make some hard calls. Protect your children. I think another area where you may have to make some hard calls is in the area of margin. Margin. We're going to talk in detail about this in three weeks. But we live in a world where there are so many options for our time. There are so many things that people can do. You can get involved in things 24 hours a day. And so somebody in the home has got to be the person that says, we're going to carve out time for God, and we're going to carve out time for family, and we're not going to let anything interfere with those things. And I believe that's the role of the man. I think that's the role of a godly husband who will say, I'm the spiritual leader, and we're going to make these things, spiritual things and family things, high priority in our lives. So many young families today are not really families at all. They're just sort of a boarding school and a taxi service for kids. Now, I know that that's the default. That's, that's the direction our world goes. And you have to make some tough decisions. And I, in, my, in my family, I, I mean, modesty has not been a, a super big issue that we've had to wrestle with, but, but margin has been. And we've been so tempted to forfeit our spiritual commitments and our family commitments for all the busyness of the world. And some of the hardest decisions I've had to make as a father have been decisions about margin. If, if we're going to be spiritual leaders, men, we're going to have to make some tough calls about things such as modesty and margin. Well, somebody I'm sure is thinking, what if the wife is the spiritual leader? I'm sure we have families and some families, there is no husband present and, uh, and, and moms uh, thankfully step up and, and they have to play both roles. God bless them and we should pray for them. Uh, but in some families where there is a husband and a, and a father in the home, wives still are the spiritual leaders. What does the Bible say about that? Well, first of all, thank the Lord that, that there's a woman who, who sees the importance of spiritual leadership. And, and God bless those women who are spiritual leaders in their family because their husbands are not doing what they ought to do. But let me tell you, men, three things that happen when your wife is the spiritual leader. First of all, it just won't be as effective. Now, it doesn't mean that wives are not uh, as important or as good at different things. This is not a value thing. It's just that in, in a home, when, and when kids are growing up, I think the spiritual example set by the father makes more difference in the lives of those children than anything else. 
than the mother's spiritual example, than uh, the, the church's effective ministry, than children's ministry and youth ministry, as important as all those things are. I just think the most important thing is the father's spiritual example in the home. And fathers, when you forfeit that role to your wives, you have um, handicapped your children spiritually. The second thing that happens is the failure uh, will lead to poor, will, will cause your kids to have a poor example uh, as they grow up. So your sons, if they have not had a father who is the spiritual leader, when they go and they begin their families, guess what will happen? They won't be the spiritual leaders in their families either, right? They learned how to be a dad and they learned how to be a husband from their father. And if their father was not a spiritual leader, then they most likely will not be a spiritual leader and it just gets passed down generation to generation. And men, what about our, what about our daughters? Well, our daughters one day will be out interviewing husbands, right? Potential husbands. And they'll be looking for a man and they'll be talking to men about getting married and I want my daughters to look for a man who will be a spiritual leader. And the only way they can learn to do that is to grow up in a home where there's a spiritual leader. And so, men, if you forfeit this role to your wife, you, you fail to set an example uh, that could have great um, effect on the marriages of your children and grandchildren down through many, many generations. And then the third thing that happens if if you fail men, if we fail to be spiritual leaders, is that your wife will not have what she wants and needs. Uh, you, you are the shepherd of your wife. You should protect her. You should nurture her. You should, you, you should help her to grow and develop spiritually. And certainly she will do much of that for you as well. But you are the shepherd. And your wife is not as blessed as she ought to be blessed if you are not the spiritual leader of the home. So... Uh, if you're going to love your wife like Christ loved the church, put the family first, be the spiritual leader. Number three, be attentive to your wife. Let's just keep reading verse 28. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. <clears throat> what does it mean that I should love my wife like I love my own body? Well, men, we're attentive to our bodies, right? Our bodies are hungry. We, we eat. If our bodies are sleepy, we sleep. If our bodies are in pain, we go to the doctor. We, we are attentive to the needs of our bodies. And so it says that, that we should love our wives with the same kind of attentiveness. That means we need to listen to her. That means we need to know her heart. We need to know what her feelings are. We need to know what her, what her emotions are. We need to know what her fears are, the things that excite her. I know most of us men, we're not very good listeners. We're fixers. But the Bible doesn't say to fix your wife. She's smarter than you. She doesn't need your fixing. But the Bible says you're to understand your wife and you're to be sensitive to her just like you're sensitive to your own body. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. The Bible says if you don't listen to her, I'm not going to listen to you. Let that sink in for a moment. We need to be attentive to our wives. Now, if we can read the next verse, it just underscores the same thought. Verse 29, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. It says that we need to provide 
or nourish, your Bible might say, our wives, and we need to care, your Bible may say, cherish your wife. It means we need to study and figure out her needs. We need to be so attentive to her. It is the most important thing when we come home to be attentive to the needs of our wives. I read something this week uh, about how affection in a marriage, not intimacy, and that perhaps as well, but how affection, men, that means you just showing her attention, how affection in a marriage tends to decrease as the years increase. It shouldn't be that way. And so somebody, somebody wrote this, uh, what happens in the first five years of marriage when your wife gets a cold? Have you heard this? The first year of marriage, the wife gets a cold. The husband says, honey, I'm really worried about you. I don't want to see you uncomfortable even one more minute. So I'm putting you in the hospital right now. Uh, that way you can get some good rest. I'll bring you three of your favorite meals every day. I will rub your back until you go to sleep every night. Uh, you can rest knowing that the house will be spotless and in order when you return. Nothing to worry about. Let's go to the hospital. That's, that's your one. Well, she gets a cold the next year. Things are a little different. He says, listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that. I've called the doctor to rush over here. Now go to bed and get some rest. I'll take care of things. So that's still a kind husband. But then your three rolls around. She gets a cold again. He says, look, dear, be sensible. After you've fed the kids and got the dishes done and the floor mopped, you better lie down. As she gets a cold year four, he says, I wish you'd just gargle something instead of sitting around barking like a seal all evening. <laughs> year five, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? <laughs> Listen, my wife thought when we got married, my wife thought when we got married that the kindness and the sensitivity that I showed her in our courtship, she thought that was going to continue the rest of our days. Men, we need to ask the question, are we holding up our end of the bargain? Well, there is a, there is a fourth thing. I mean, if we're going to love our wives like Christ loved the church, we must be devoted to her alone. Look at verse 31, skipping down a little bit says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. The three simple parts of that instruction, it's all about being devoted, pardon me, to your wife alone. But the first part tells us that there ought to be a separation. It says to, to leave your father and mother. Uh, men, uh, women, this is true of every young marriage. You have to focus on separating. There has to be a new focus. Men, it's not about your mother anymore. It's about your wife. You must be independent. You must be responsible. You must be focused on your new family. But the second thing you see here in this verse is a connection. It says you will be joined together. Uh, joined like cement. You're one. There needs to be no consideration for anything beyond that. You're, you're not... You're not married on a trial basis. You're not just going through some motions to see if this works out. There must be a permanent connection. But then it says that you'll become one flesh. Now, you've heard that this refers to intimacy, and it does. It certainly means that. But it means even more than that. It means that emotionally, uh, you are one. Uh, 
And this becomes easier the longer that you've been married, if you have an ideal marriage. Uh, but you c- should come to the place where your emotions are just linked. If my wife is unhappy, I'm unhappy. Not just because she makes me unhappy, but, but because my emotions are tied to her. When my, my, when my wife is happy, I'm happy. When I'm happy, she's happy. When I'm upset or stressed, she's upset or stressed. Emotionally, you ought to become one. You're one flesh. You wouldn't say that your left arm is depressed, but your right arm is filled with joy. That just doesn't even make sense. Because I'm just one person. I'm either depressed or filled with joy. In, in, in our relationship, you should work to become one emotionally. We should work to become one financially. I think one of the obstacles that, that many marriages have that keep them from ever really becoming one flesh is that they keep the finances separate. Now, I'm not giving you advice on how to budget your money or how to use a credit card or a checkbook. I mean, you've got to do what's practical. You don't want my input on that. But... But it's, it's your money together. It's your responsibility together. It's your bills together. We're to become one flesh. And then I think the same is true socially. Nothing wrong with a man having friends and, 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 a, and a woman having a girl's night every once in a while. But, 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 but this can't just be two people who room together for the cost benefits that come and for the intimacy that they enjoy. But other than that, they're just two separate people. No, we are to be one flesh. Men, God is trying to make a masterpiece out of your marriage. So that it brings joy to you, so that it brings stability and teaches this same lesson to your children, so that it becomes a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in order to get all these ingredients to come together, it starts with me and you. We must love our wives like Christ loved the church. That means something. That's not just something you put on a greeting card. That means something. Let us commit ourselves to loving our wives like that so that God can work in our marriages and the lives of our children like he wants to. Psalm 127, one of my favorite verses in the the psalm, Psalm 127, 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays alert in vain. You could go to the bookstore today, you could buy a thousand different titles about how to have a a happy marriage. But I'm telling you all the self-help, all the advice, all the Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Phil that you can watch, the only hope, the only thing you can do that will really matter if you want the masterpiece of a godly marriage is for men, for you to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I want to issue an invitation a couple of ways. Uh, We've talked about the gospel throughout this message, and our focus has been on marriage, but it's also really been on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most important message we have is that Jesus died for your sins so that you could have a relationship with him, so 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 that you could be reconciled to the Father. And if you'd like to make a decision today to be eternally a part of God's family, I want to ask you just to step forward in a moment and take the hand of one of the ministers that will be here in the front and say, help me today have a saving relationship with Jesus. We'd love to do that. But listen, many of us, we do know Christ is our Savior. 
And now we need to know Christ as the model for how we love our wives. Men, would you recommit yourself today to putting her first? This is not a 50-50 deal. Quit being selfish. Be a man. Be a godly man. And let us honor our wives. Let us serve our wives. Let us love our wives like Christ loved the church. Father, move in our hearts. Change our lives for your honor and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.